You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. see you guys this morning. As I try to say each and every time we gather in this, uh, this space, thanks for bringing the church into this building. Uh, if you stand among God's redeemed, you are the church. Uh, the church is not a building or a service. It's a people. Um, and so grateful to, to be with you guys. Before we jump into anything, uh, just a, another thank you. And I speak on behalf of, of James here for the pastor appreciation gift that we received uh, last week. Uh, super encouraged. Super grateful to be a part of a, a loving, compassionate, kind, caring church family uh, that exudes the fruit of the Spirit. We'll get there soon enough. Next week, when we get into the, the back half of Galatians chapter five, but lest we get ahead of ourselves, uh, excited to jump into the first half of Galatians chapter five this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church, guy who gets to do most of the preaching around these parts. Uh, excited to jump into the book of Galatians, which we've been in for the past several months. This uh, journey through this book of the Bible is gonna carry us all the way up to the Advent season, which crazy as it sounds, is only about four weeks away, uh, right, right on the heels of that. The book of Galatians, as I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, as this great book of the Bible has been deemed by many, uh, inviting us into a, a deeper understanding and appreciation of the truth, the, the beauty, the hope of the gospel, that we might find life in the sweetness of freedom rather than living lives of bondage. An old quote from this series that I haven't pulled out in a while, but I'll bring back around to frame this thing up for us. Tim Keller in his commentary, he says, the book of Galatians is dynamite. It is an explosion of joy and freedom which leaves us enjoying a deep significance, security, and satisfaction. The life of blessing God calls his people into. Why? Because it brings us face to face with the gospel. It's very common in Christian circles to assume that the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. We see it as a set of basic ABC doctrines that are the, are the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, we often assume that once we're converted, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. We need more advanced material. But in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. Paul's letter to the Galatians, an explosion of joy and freedom. In the words of one scholar, Galatians is the epistle or the New Testament letter of the soul set free. And so with that, I invite you to open your Bibles to the God-inspired, soul-freeing truth of Galatians 5. That's where we're gonna camp out, the first 15 verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and use it during our time together. If you don't own a Bible, please take that copy as the church's gift to you. Merry early Christmas. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump into God's word. 
God, thank you for the blood of Jesus without whom we would have no hope, we would have no redemption. Our redemption is indeed blood-bought. Our adoption is indeed blood-bought. Our justification is indeed blood-bought. These glorious facets of the gospel that we've camped out with thus far in our study of this great book of the Bible. Lord, I pray that as a result of our time in the scriptures this morning, that we would be fortified in our faith, that we would be encouraged, that we would see where, though we might say that we believe that in Christ we have been set free, that perhaps we're tempted to to turn functionally to the shackles of sinful indulgence, perhaps, or uh, self-wrought legalistic religion, Lord, would you free us yet again that we might walk out of this place uh, full of joy, that we might raise our hands made free for your glory. God, I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach as much as anyone else in this room. Holy Spirit, move in power. We're desperate for you who inspired this word that we're gonna sit with to stir our hearts, to awaken our minds. We don't trust that simply one more hour of sleep for those who are able to get it uh, is the means by, by which we might walk away transformed. We need you. So would you move now in power? In the name of Christ, I pray, amen. So as we, as we move into the, the fifth chapter of Galatians, Paul uh, continues his treatise on Christian freedom, having defended his apostolic authority and gospel message, followed by a rebuke in chapter one of the Galatians for lending their ears to a distortion of the gospel, the siren song of, of false teachers beckoning them toward a pit of enslavement, curse, and, and death which Paul has made an, an effort for several chapters to expose and, and contrast with the true gospel through some of the most complex argumentation in all of Paul's New Testament writings. Most recently, going back to last week and interpreting the story of Sarah and Hagar as a historically true account standing for deeper spiritual truths. Hagar and Ishmael, a representation of sinful, self-reliant human initiative, by which the blessing of God can never be obtained. Sarah and Isaac, a representation of self-abandoning trust in God through Jesus Christ, in whom all of God's promises find their yes and amen. Going back to a quote from last week, John Stott in his commentary, he says, the religion of Ishmael is a religion of nature, of what we can do by ourselves without any special intervention of God. But the religion of Isaac is a religion of grace, of what God has done and does, a religion of divine initiative and divine intervention. For Isaac was born supernaturally through a divine promise. And this is what Christianity is, not natural religion, but supernatural. He goes on to say, the Ishmaels of this world trust in themselves that they are righteous. The Isaacs trust only in God through Jesus Christ. The Ishmaels are in bondage because this is what self-reliance always leads to. The Isaacs enjoy freedom because it is through faith in Christ that people are set free. So we must seek to be like Isaac, he says, not like Ishmael. 
We must put our trust in God through Jesus Christ. For only in Christ can we inherit the promises, receive the grace, and enjoy the freedom of God. And make no mistake about it, Paul understands what's at stake to be no less than a fight for true freedom. As he goes on to say in verse one of chapter five, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Another way to say it, Christ has freed us for freedom. I mean, why say it once when you can emphatically say it twice? Freed for freedom. Bought out of the the marketplace of of sin, you and I, by Jesus's blood. More than that, granted the the rights, the privileges, the, the blessings of sons and heirs, as we've seen going through chapters three and four having been freed from the enslaving power of of idols, the Galatians were being tempted to trade one form of enslavement for another. In their case, enslavement to the law of Moses. The false teachers, they they were insisting, as we've talked about for weeks now, that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. And Paul says, do that, and you submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's language, it's not unlike that of of Peter as he stood before the apostles and the elders at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15 and, and addressed the question of whether Gentile believers were obligated to keep the law of Moses. If you pick up in that chapter of the book of Acts, verses seven through 11, we're told, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Stepping out of the the shackles of sin only to step into the new yoke of legalism, a yoke of slavery, which can only lead to, to pride or despair, depending on our performance, arrogance or hopelessness. Paul's plea to the Galatians that they not trade the shackles of idolatry for the shackles of self-wrought religiosity. He goes on to say in verse two, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who will be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul's words here, uh, not unlike those at the end of chapter two where he declared, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The cross is emptied of its purpose, of its meaning if right legal standing with God were through the law. The law on which those who rely are under a curse, chapter three, verse 10. 
For it is written, Paul says, going back to that chapter, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul's language here, it's, it's a play on words in declaring to the, the Galatians that uh, to add to the work of Jesus and severing their bodies through circumcision would be to sever themselves from Christ himself in treating his redemptive work as insufficient. To fall away from grace in embracing the path of law-keeping self-justification. As John Calvin writes, whoever wants half of Christ loses the whole. Or as the Puritan William Perkins once said, he must be a perfect savior or no savior. That in adding to the redemptive work of Jesus, we diminish its value altogether. As I've shared a couple times throughout this series, the illustration, if, if someone were to pass off a collectible, let's say a signed Mickey Mantle baseball, but, but the signature was just a bit faded, it would be the most ridiculous thing ever to then pull a Sharpie out of the, the office drawer and draw over that signature to try to improve it. The minute that Sharpie touches the ball, the value is, is nothing, is zero. <laughs> In the words of one pastor and scholar, Jesus's finished work cannot be refinished. It can only be destroyed. Another way to say it, Jesus is of no advantage to us, verse two, if he is not the totality of justification for us. Paul goes on in, in verse five, he says, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That, that just as we began the Christian life uh, through the Spirit by faith, so we continue the Christian life through the Spirit by faith. Eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness, Paul says, a righteousness future. In one sense, the appearing of Christ himself, Christ our righteousness, who will someday return to set all things right. As the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter nine, verses 27 and 28, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In one sense, we, we eagerly wait for faith in Jesus or by faith for Jesus, I should say, who as the righteous one is the hope of righteousness. In another sense, we eagerly wait by faith for the, the hope of our own future righteousness. As Paul says elsewhere, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses seven and eight, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. There it is, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to of all who have loved his appearing. Not only the, the final declaration, legally speaking, of righteous standing before God on the last day, but to God's great work of glorification in, in making us once for all perfectly holy glorified bodies and souls without blemish or fault, shining with the brightness of Christ's glory for his glory. That's where the story's headed. 
For this hope, we eagerly wait, Paul says. And we wait not in cross-diminishing spirit, abandoning self-reliance, but in cross-clinging spirit-reliant faith. Faith that Paul says, if genuine, evidences itself through love, verse six, which Paul's gonna more deeply lay out throughout the, the remainder of this letter. He says in verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, it's not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord, Paul says, that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Again, the, the Galatians, they started out well by hearing through faith, but they'd been bewitched. God having called them in the grace of Christ, chapter one, verse six, the false teachers calling them away from the grace of Christ. Such false teaching uh, described by Paul as a little leaven that, that leavens the whole lump. Right? Leaven, as many of you know, it, it, it spreads throughout dough in, in such a way that the smallest amount affects everything with which it comes into contact. Be it the leaven of divisiveness and dissension, the leaven of sinful indulgence. With respect to the churches in Galatia, the leaven of legalism, the leaven of cross-diminishing, spirit-abandoning self-reliance. Right? It only takes a, a few people to take a church down a path of destruction. At times, even one incredibly determined person can do it. Jesus himself, having warned the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Unmarked graves that they were, thinking highly of themselves and their perceived righteousness. And yet not only were they dead inside, whitewashed tombs, Jesus says, but, but they were leading others to that pit of death, spreading the, the cancer of their leavened hypocrisy everywhere they went. So too were the, the Judaizers, the false teachers in Galatia who had brought in the leaven of works-based righteousness. The tiniest bit of leaven in the, the call to Jesus plus circumcision. That leaven, however, contaminating the entire gospel. And yet Paul declares confidence in the Lord, verse 10, that the Galatians will not ultimately fall into that pit of death. More than that, that those leading them astray will bear the penalty. They won't get off the hook for it. Paul having already de declared, going back to chapter one, verse eight, that anyone who would preach a different gospel stands under the divine curse of God meaning nothing less than a, a suffering of the judicial wrath of God. No messenger, no matter how impressive, has the right nor the authority to change the message of the gospel. Paul says in verse 11, he says, but if I brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul here, uh, setting himself apart from the false teachers in Galatia, they having removed the offense of the cross and adding circumcision, Paul suffering persecution in preaching the sufficiency of Christ crucified. The word uh, offense from the, the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our English word scandal. A 
stumbling block over which many have tripped, both Jew and Gentile. As Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on a couple verses later, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross, it's an offense to those who believe that they can contribute to their own right standing with God. It offends human pride. It offends human achievement. As F.F. Bruce says in his commentary on this passage, the cross cuts the ground from under every thought of personal achievement or merit where God's salvation is in view. To be shut up to receiving salvation from the crucified one, if it is to be received at all, is an affront to all notions of proper self-pride and self-help. And for many people, this remains a major stumbling block in the gospel of Christ crucified. Man wants a, a gospel that commends him, that makes him feel good, even great about himself. But such a gospel is no gospel, as the true gospel declares that all are sinners in need of a savior. And that Christ Jesus is that savior whose death is sufficient to make atonement. That we cannot and must not abandon the message of the cross nor water it down into something that it's not. In the words of one pastor and scholar, where else but the cross can people see that they are sinners? And where else can they meet the savior? The apostle Paul appalled by the message of these false teachers in Galatia and the bondage into which they were uh, calling people among the churches there in the region. So much so that he declares, why don't you, you take your thinking to its extreme end? If you're gonna commit to circumcision, why not go all the way to castration? That's a graphic imagery, right? And, and yet it captures well the, the heart of Paul's argument, does it not? In that, if circumcision is a, a meritorious work, then the entire law must be obeyed. One must go all the way. Two, Paul perhaps alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 23, which speaks of eunuchs being uh, cut off from the assembly of the Lord. Here perhaps declaring that the false teachers have cut themselves off, that they stand on the outside of the true assembly of God's people. He says in verse 13, but you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul here Uh, making plain something that that many have missed in the name of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Namely, that the faith that alone justifies is never alone, in that it, it evidences itself as genuine in the bearing of good fruit. 
To paraphrase one pastor and writer, it's not only possible to lose gospel freedom, which is what the Judaizers were calling the Galatians to, it's not only possible to lose gospel freedom, but to abuse gospel freedom. Paul declaring that, that freedom from the bondage of legalism does not mean a life of lawlessness or the bigger theological word, antinomianism. That we're not saved by our good works, but Ephesians 2, we are saved unto good works. The outworking of, of true justification, a life of progressive sanctification, a life that, that Paul will go on to describe as the fruit of the Spirit. That list beginning with love. Verse 14. Paul here declaring that, that those who live in cross-clinging Spirit-reliant faith will bear the fruit of love and will fulfill the law in its most beautiful sense. Not as meriting salvation, but, but as an outworking of God's grace in Christ. Unlike those who bite and devour one another, the word translated bite used in the Old Testament of serpents. It's what happens when we when we attempt to live lives of self-reliant religious performance, whether in the pursuit of God's acceptance or the acceptance of others in the religious community. It's just what happens, it's the outworking. We begin to compare and, and treat others as less than, which can only lead to division and strife. That apart from the true gospel, we're, we're bound to the shackles of, of the law and are unable to truly love. But, Paul says, through faith in the person and redemptive work of Jesus, we can know true freedom and joy, and with that, the freedom to love one another. The kind of love that, that could never flow from the pride or insecurity that comes with works-based religiosity. Tim Keller, in his commentary, he says, since our faith in Christ gives us certain hope, which overflows as love for others, if we find our love running dry or cold, the root of our lack of love is not that we are not by faith looking at our hope. If we find ourselves unloving, the solution is not to seek to love better or more. It is to look at Christ who gives us an unlosable, unshakable acceptance from the Father. And as we dwell on our hope, we will find our hearts melted by his love and overflowing with his love to others. It's one thing to, to know and believe that, that we are free. In Christ, free from the guilt and, and condemnation that would otherwise be ours in the legal sense, the judicial sense. But it's an altogether different thing to live in that freedom. A life, again, of cross-clinging, spirit-reliant faith bearing the fruit of love. Right? Tempting are, are those idols that, that enslave approval, power, comfort, control, to name a few. Tempting too is that, that enslaving siren song that would, that would beckon us to, to live in the pursuit of God's acceptance rather than the, from the position of acceptance that's already ours in Jesus Christ. 
Sure, many of us would say that in Christ we've been set free, but the good news is that we can actually rest in and experience true freedom in real time with real people. Freedom from the idols of our day, freedom from the treadmill of self-wrought religious performance. Such freedom, Paul says, giving way to true love, love for God and love for neighbor. There's a, there's a story that's been told from uh, Civil War days about a, a northerner who attended a, a slave auction and purchased a young girl. And as they left the auction, the, the man turned to the girl and he said to her, you're free. And in astonishment, she replied, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I wanna say? Yes, anything. To be whatever I wanna be? Yep. And even go wherever I wanna go? Yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like. She looked at him intently and replied, then I will go with you. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It frees us from the shackles that would otherwise bind us that with our unbound hands, we might cling to Christ and serve his people in love. For freedom, we've been set free in Jesus. Let us then go with him. That's the heart of this morning's time in the scriptures. I love what we, what we do when we gather, the, the means of grace that are right there in front of us because in just a moment, we get to sing collectively. And if you're so inclined to do so, you can lift your unbound hands to the Lord as you do so. We're free to take communion together because there is a togetherness about this story of redemption. There is a one anotherness about this story of redemption. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin that can only be found in him. If you are a Christian, as many of you know, uh, we take the bread representing Jesus' broken body. We dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion tables on either side of the stage here. There's a gluten-free table in the back corner there. At any point over the course of these last couple songs between now and the benediction, you're welcome to receive of those elements. And as you do, again, I, I just encourage you to come back to the language of the Apostle Paul in this morning's passage. Just this, this reminder that if we let go of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have nothing. We've let go of grace. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.